Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're going to try to address a, a, a question which is, if you think about it, it's kind of perplexing, which is that we just had Parsha's Breshis, meaning to say God just created the world, and now in the, in the second portion of the Torah, Parsha's Noah, God destroys the world. So one could think, what, what happened, you know? And, and, and so let's try to wrap our minds around that, that sort of like abrupt transition from creation to destruction. And what are we supposed to learn from that? And what are just, what, what's just going on in terms of the Torah and what God is trying to communicate to us with this lesson? And um, I had sort of a kind of a, a, a new thought uh, on this, and, and I, I'd like to sort of map it out for you guys. And when, when, you, when you sort of like inhabit this thought and look at the Torah, you'll see the Torah in a, in, in a whole other way. Um, and this world may be in another way. Um, so, so that's a large statement, I realize. But let's, let's just try to, to, to map it out. Um, so, so we know that the, the Medrash teaches something very interesting, which is that God created and destroyed many worlds before he created this one. And... In fact, um, in the 1800s, when dinosaur bones was, were first discovered, uh, the Teferis Israel, who was one of the greatest Torah commentators at that point, he wrote a, a big um, commentary on the, on the Mishnah. When he heard that they had found dinosaur bones, he was incredibly happy. And the reason why was because he said that we've been saying that God created and destroyed worlds before this one, and now we finally have physical evidence of this. So he saw, he saw that as a, um, an affirmation of this teaching, of this, of this tradition. Now, now, with this in mind, let's, let's, let's add another, an, another question, which is, is it possible, and this is our premise, is it possible that the entire episode of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was actually the final destruction of a world before the creation of this world, of the world that God, so to speak, all along intended to create. And if you think about it, the world that we live in right now, in terms of the nature of the world, um, day and night, all these, all these um, seasons, um, one's lifespan, um, how God approaches us, the fact that we can eat meat. You know, before the flood, we weren't allowed to eat meat. Um, the th it says after the flood that God no longer counts our thoughts against us, just our actions are, are the main thing. So there's so many changes in both the physical realm and in terms of how God uh, approaches us and deals with us that happened after the flood. In other words, the world that we live in right now is the post-flood world. It's not really the world of Breshis, of the Garden of Eden. It's a, it's a different world that we live in right now from that world, and it's the post-flood world. So again, is it possible that the entire episode of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was actually the final destruction 
of the many worlds that God made before the creation of this world, which was the world that was intended to be made all along. So that's, that's the premise. That's the premise. And now let me give you some supports for this, okay? So on the one hand, we... On the one hand, we know that, um, that Adam and Eve had, had free choice and, we, um, and, and, and were responsible for all of our actions. In fact, very interestingly, you know, there's sort of two main checkpoints in a person's life when they become bar bat mitzvah and then when they reach the age of 20. So when they each reach the age of 20, we're fully responsible for all of our actions in terms of giving an account in the next world. So that probably will come, I know that came as a huge relief to me when I learned that. <laughs> so that may be great news for some people, I don't know. But anyway, um, nonetheless, one is chayiv, meaning one is obligated and responsible halachically and in terms of the guidance of their life and, and their fate and everything like that when they become bar bar mitzvah. So that is, a, that is a very real serious checkpoint. But nonetheless, 20 is also a serious checkpoint when one becomes responsible in this way um, or accountable. So with that in mind, it's very interesting that the Medrash tells us that Adam and Eve were created as 20-year-olds. Like, why pick that number? Why, pick, why not say 18-year-olds? Why not say 21-year-olds? But it says 20-year-olds and I believe that the reason why they were created as 20-year-olds was to show that they were fully responsible for any decisions that they made and accountable for any decisions that they made. So, so, so when, they were, when we were, since we're all their descendants, kicked out of the Garden of Eden, that was just. That wasn't, that wasn't an unjust punishment. That was, that, was a, that was a just thing. Okay. Are you Nonetheless, destruction being kicked out? Well, the, that was an aspect of the symptom, but, but we're getting ahead of ourselves now. The destruction is actually the flood. We're saying that the destruction was the flood, and the new world that came is the post-flood world. But nonetheless, getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden was a stage in the symptom. Now, now, as long as we're on that subject, let's go a little bit further with that. So I'm using this word symptom. So remember, symptom is, is a very key word in terms of understanding the creation of the world. And it's a two-stage process. I often focus on the, the second stage of it, but, but let's just have a quick, fuller discussion. Stage one is, remember, God fills everything. God fills the entire universe. So in order to create a, 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 a world where people have free choice, right, where God isn't openly apparent and completely obvious, as he is to the angels, and this is why angels don't have free choice, because they have a quantumly higher level of understanding of God than we do. So God is visibly in front of them at all times. So they don't have free choice. They can't do the wrong thing. Nonetheless, God wanted to create a realm where his creations had free choice, could choose to do the right thing or choose to do not the right thing, in which case God would have to conceal himself in a very meaningful way. So in order to do that, God, so to speak, and remember, all of this language that I'm going to use right now is all metaphorical because we don't, we don't have the tools to conceptualize 
what, what went on. This is before creation, basically, or the initial stages of creation. Nonetheless, the rabbis put it into words just so that we can have some sort of framework to apply our imagination to. Okay? So what God did was God filled the whole world. God made what's called a, the vacated space or an empty space within himself, almost like, Kaviyocho, a womb within a woman, if you will. Obviously, God doesn't have a body. God makes bodies. Nonetheless, this is just a, a way of, of, of conceptualizing it. God made a space within himself, an empty space. And what's the big Kabbalistic joke? Is that the empty space is, of course, filled with godliness, right? Right? There is no empty space. But relative to, say, what the angels see when they experience God, we experience it as an empty space. A person is capable of standing in this world and looking around and saying, where is God? Even as God is not only all around him or her, but keeping the entire universe going, keeping them alive, and allowing them to process this thought as they're asking, where is God or is there a God? So, so God is clearly here, and then when you know that he's here, then it becomes obvious that he's here because you see him in everything and everywhere. But nonetheless... God created a, this vacated space where one could wonder if he exists at all. Then, within this space, he shone a light, and this light became ever more contracted until it became materiality itself. And then it exploded. Right? We have the Big Bang Theory thousands of years before science arrived at it, which is that God sort of compacted his light to a point where there was a point of physicality, and that point of physicality expanded, right? Until we have the dimensions of the physical universe. Okay. So, but what you see here, the point that, that I'd like to suggest here, is that what you see here in the second stage of Tzimtzum, when God shone his light, is you have this ever further compacting of the light. So it's one spectrum from light and spirituality to materiality, to physicality. Right? That's one uninterrupted process. Okay. Now with that in mind, again, let's revisit the premise and now we're going to go back to Adam and Chava in the Garden of Eden. Okay? Which is, is it possible, since we know that the Medrash tells us that God created and destroyed many worlds before he created this world, right? That the whole Garden of Eden experience was actually the last destruction before the real creation that God intended to make all along, which was the post-flood world with all the new laws of nature that we live in today. So now let's, let's make some more arguments for this, for this thesis, okay? So, so one thing is we said that we see this transition in terms of Tzimtzum, in terms of the second stage of Tzimtzum, the contraction of the light to physicality, right? Isn't it interesting that our tradition is that Adam and Chava were originally creatures of light? And it's only after they ate from the, from the tree that God clothed them in these garments of skin, Right? If you look at the, if you, this is a deeper shot of what the Chumash says, <coughs> um, 
But if you look at if you look at the account in the Torah, it says that before they left the Garden of Eden, God gave them leather garments. But leather is really means leather means um, it's a uh, it's um, spelled uh, ayin vav resh, which um, you pronounce as or. Or is the word for light. So there's a little play on words going on here. On the one hand, God is clothing them with leather garments, meaning to say with skin, with physicality. This is the deeper understanding. And it says that Rebbe Meir, who is one of the greatest, it says, Stam Mishnah Rebbe Meir. Any Mishnah in the Talmud that doesn't have a name attached to it was written by Rebbe Meir, which is probably most of the Mishnahs in the Talmud. So you can imagine who Rebbe Meir is. Rebbe Meir is one of the, the greatest you know, rabbis in all of history. So it says in the Sefer Torah, the Torah scroll of Rebbe Meir, in the margin where it says garments of skin, right, or leather, spelled ayin, vavresh, which is pronounced or, he wrote in the margin the letter aleph, meaning aleph vavresh, meaning or, which is light. So again, you have this transition from light to physicality, which is exactly what we're describing in terms of the creation of the world. So you see this in terms of our understanding of the transition that Adam and Chava went through on the way to being what we would call recognizable human beings, right? Like this idea of creatures of light. Like when it says in the Talmud that Adam was a hundred amos tall originally. A hundred amos tall is like, that's like he's like the size of a skyscraper. So does that, and then he gets kind of squashed down after eating from the tree. So do we say that he was actually like a physical giant? No, this is, this is talking about his, pre, his pre-clothed, his pre-physical state. In other words, he was like a creature of light, which is like a much more, it's like a, just a different form, right? And then as the world becomes much more physicalized, he becomes more, he then takes on the shape of a, of a person at this point. See, so all of this is, 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 is pointing to this transition into the present world that we're in right now. But we have another point that we have to address, which is that if we're going to say, remember the premise, if we're going to say that actually the whole world of the Garden of Eden and Breshid and everything like that was actually the last destruction before the first creation, meaning before the creation of this world that God intended to create all, all along, that means God has to have intended for Adam and Chava to have eaten from the tree. Because, because otherwise it's just essentially our fault and we essentially messed up the world and that's what it is. And then this was like a rebooting of the world as opposed to the creation that was intended all along, right? So where do we see that Adam and Chava were fated to eat from the tree? So I told you already that they were created as 20-year-olds. Now that's a very interesting point just in terms of the age of the universe. Now remember, a lot of um, people who are ignorant and, and unlearned and, and don't understand what the Torah is saying at all 
like to point to the fact that the world, that we say that the world is, or that our calendar is 5,776 now. And so they say, oh, look at this primitive system that says that the world is 5,000 years old, right? So you should all know and, and take comfort in the fact that already a student of the Ramban, this is in the 1100s, was already saying that the world was approximately 11 to 14 billion years old. All right? That's already a thousand years ago we were saying that number. And if you want to know more on that, how he arrived at that, because it's, it's fascinating the calculation, how he arrived at that, using verses from the Torah and all sorts of amazing things. By the way, that is what science says today in terms of the age of the universe. You can look in Rabbi Ari Kaplan's um, Age of the Universe book. He, he steps it out in a, in, in a way where you see his calculations. Um, the Vilna Gon is pointing out the fact that um, it says in the Torah that on the fourth day, God hung the sun and the moon in the sky. Meaning to say that's already the beginning of a, a 24-hour type day. Meaning to say before that, before that, that the initial days of creation were billions of years old. The Vilna Gon's already saying that hundreds of years ago. And, and you see that in the Torah, that you're not locked into this thing. So when do we begin time? When do we begin this 5,000-year count? With the um, creation of human beings. So that's, that's, when, that's, that's already the sixth day of creation. That's, that's when that account starts. Now, again, I told you that God created Adam and Chava as 20-year-olds. 20 20 so now, let's have a deeper perspective, actually how the world could actually be 5,776 years old. Right? We, now we just, I showed you the other side of it, where, which is very consistent with science, right? Nonetheless, hear this point. God, in one second, created them as 20-year-olds. In other words, so in one second, they were one second old. They were one second old, and yet they were 20-year-olds. So why can't God, in one second, create a world that's billions of years old? Do you understand? God can create something that's very old. God is not subject to time. <laughs> so in that way, there's no problem whatsoever in the idea that the world is actually 5,776 years old and yet was created billions of years old. It's also a possibility. Right? So, so now, again, we were responsible for what we did. And we have to always understand, because the more that you learn about God, basically, the more you just wonder, how is it possible that you have any free choice at all? Right? And yet, as a foundation, we say we absolutely have free choice, even if you don't understand how it works. You absolutely have free choice, and you're absolutely responsible for your actions. These are solid bedrock premises of, of Torah. Okay? Nonetheless, now let's learn out the version where it was actually destined by God that they should eat from the tree. Okay? 
because there's an opinion among the rabbis that this was actually was God's plan that we should eat from the tree. So how does that work? So this is the example that the, that the Medrash brings. That a, a wife brings um, a drink for her husband and she spills it on him. Right? By accident. And the man pulls out a get, a bill of divorce from his pocket and presents it to her. So in this example, it's sort of like, why was the man carrying around a get? <laughs> well, you know, what? He's, he, he's just got it in his pocket? Like, clearly he was waiting for an opportunity to present it to his wife. And this was the first opportunity, so he presented it at that occasion. So this is how the, this is not my metaphor. This is the, this is the Medrash. This is how the Medrash explains the exile from the Garden of Eden. That, that God, so to speak, was waiting for an opportunity to exile us from the Garden of Eden because that wasn't the plan. That wasn't the final state that God was trying to bring into place. That, that the destruction of that world was part of a process of the destruction of many worlds leading up to the world that God actually did want to create, which is this post-flood world. That's the final epic destruction before this world that we inhabit now, which was the plan all along. So, so now, now let's go further into this idea. So, so do you see? So, so, so now you look at the Torah and you go, wow, so, so the whole opening of Breshis, the whole Garden of Eden, which, okay, so I kind of get it now. The whole Garden of Eden thing was like, it's a very spiritual realm, right? And that's sort of like the last evidence of sort of like all of the spiritual worlds even beyond that before we get to the physical world. So remember, we say that the Midrash says that the that the Torah is the blueprint of the world, like, like a construction blueprint. So God is showing us like where this world is situated. In other words, where this, where this world came from. You see like the whole roots of it, like the spiritual realm above this world, right? Amazing, an amazing thing. Now, now why would God include that account? Why would God include that account? So remember, the Torah means teaching. You see, a lot of people make a mistake. They look at the Torah and they think that it's a history book. And they go, well, you know something, since clearly it's a history book, which it's not, but this is what they think. Since clearly it's a history book, how come this historical event wasn't included in it? And how come that historical event wasn't included in it? It's not a history book. It's a book of teaching. So, and then they say, well, this, you know, so all sorts of questions, like, you realize that God is giving us certain things because these are the things that we need in order to understand how to live our lives. That's what the Torah is. It's, it's sort of the, it's the, it's the, it's the user's manual to your soul, to your life, and to this world, right? I, I, I always 
quote it because I, I love it so much. I heard Rabbi Matas Yahu Solomon, the Mashkiach, the spiritual leader of the Lakewood Yeshiva, said that w- one time his, his, his wife bought a, a, a new blender and the, and the blender came with a 30-page manual. And he said, a blender comes with a 30-page manual. Can you imagine the world doesn't come with a manual? Right? So, so that's what the Torah is. So the Torah is showing us, so why include the whole incident in the Garden of Eden at all? In order to show us where, what, where we're going. What is, what is required of us in order to give us insights into our own, our own makeup, if you will. You see, the big transition in terms of eating from the tree of knowledge and we discussed it last week, and, and, and I, hope, um, I hope you'll get a chance to listen to this talk if you haven't heard it. Um, I called it Adam and Eve, What Went Wrong? Okay, so that was last week's talk, and this is kind of building on that. The whole transition is this sense of, um, well, I'm going to use a lot of words, but they're all accurate. Abandonment, that, that we have this sense of abandonment, that we have this sense of being alone, that we have this sense of being disconnected, that we have this sense of being independent, which is already getting into, I mean, this negative consequence, because if we think that we're alone and independent, then we think that we ourselves are the final authority and the actual power in the world. All of these things are the consequences of eating from the tree. This notion of self-consciousness, of seeing the world through our own eyes as opposed to through God's eyes. You see, that's, that's what we have to really work on, you know? And it's... Um, one of the... One of the big... Just to talk super practically right now. One of the big pieces of work that a person can do, a big shift in terms of going through life is, is, is not making it about you, right? It's like a lot of, I would say probably most people go through life and what is life, the whole point of life is, it's about me, essentially. And to the extent that you can make it not about you and about your community or the people you love or your family or your friends and not to obviously neglect yourself. You have to also be responsible and look out after your health and your interests and things like that. Like a lot of people, like I remember a lot of like a a big syndrome in terms of people who are caretakers, who have um, someone in their life who, you know, needs a lot of help, who's sick, right? A lot of times those people end up neglecting themselves and their, their own interests, and things like that. That's called caretaker syndrome, right? So, so you don't want to be in a, in a place where essentially you're afflicting yourself with caretaker syndrome, where you're just thinking about everyone, but not about yourself at all. That, that's not the right balance. But at the same time, it just, it, to the extent that you can not just make it about you, you actually liberate yourself, and you actually make yourself substantially happier. It's kind, of, it's kind of a funny paradox, because you would think that, wow, the more I can make it about me, the more I can ensure that I get what I want, 
and the happier I'm going to be. And it turns out that it's completely the opposite. <laughs> because the more you make it about you, the more you focus about every one of your needs, the more you're aware of how many of your needs aren't being met, and the less happy you are. It, it's, it's, it's a big paradox. It's a big paradox. So, so I remember Reb Shlomo said, uh, it was, um, it was, it's a Hasidic story, I forgot which Rebbe it was, but it was someone who came in to see this Rebbe, and you know, there were people in the, kind of in the lobby area waiting to, for an appointment with the Rebbe, and this person came in, and he was in like total rags, you know, just really like, just at the end, just in the lowest place, and he goes in to see the Rebbe, and um, anyway, Sometime later, I don't know how long it was afterwards, days, weeks, months, I have no idea how long it was afterwards. The same scene takes place, but someone walks in, and this person's like shining and everything like this. And someone who I guess had seen him before, like doesn't even recognize him, and says to him like, you're that same guy? Like, what did the Rebbe tell you? Right? And, and he said that the Rebbe told me to think about other people a half an hour a day. And somehow that was the opening that this person needed to completely transform his life and to change his life. So, so, so now let's go into Noah, because Noah is going to uh, give us the key To understanding what the what the whole um, what the whole game plan for this world is. So it says in the beginning of Parshas Noah that the earth had become corrupted. So I think most of us are sort of like um, kind of like locked into our traditional understanding of what that means. Meaning to say that people were really acting like really in a in a, in a wildly immoral way. Right, and um, and interestingly, one of the one of the reasons why people were acting in this wildly immoral way was because they had so much time on their hands, which is kind of interesting because in present day society, you know, we have more and more time on our hands. Um, it said that people would plant one crop and they would have food for 40 years based on that one crop. Now you can imagine, that's, that's a lot of time on your hands, you know? Um, so, so it also says... <laughs> it also says that... Uh, so, so let's get another, another shot, another explanation of, uh, of what it means that the earth had become corrupted. So this is from the Sasover Rebbe. He was one of the great Hasidic masters. And he was like best friends with the Berdichever Rebbe. Okay? So he was like really a lover of humanity, huge lover of humanity. So what did, what did, the, what did the Sasover Rebbe explain that it means that the earth became corrupted? He said that Basically, our job is to instill the material universe with spirituality, to uplift the physical and the material with the spiritual. That's, that's our job, right? 
And that's, that's actually a fairly, that's like kind of like a radical theology. Meaning to say, like in Eastern religions, like the super holy man, like sits on top of a mountain by themselves, right? So that's sort of like isolation. In other words, you achieve holiness by, by removing yourself from society. If you think of, say, Catholicism, the priest is someone who's not married, right? Doesn't have any kids. Why? Because he's removed himself from sort of like, kind of like the, the front lines of human relationships, which is, you know, what it means to be in a marriage and raising kids and, and all the rest. That's like really, that's, that's already the nitty gritty. So again, the, the holy man of that religion is sort of like removing himself from kind of like a lot of the battleground of, of what it means to be in this world. Judaism says the opposite. Judaism says plunge into this world, right, in all aspects of this world, and yet do it in a way that's elevating everything around you, right? This is why, by the way, anti-Semites have like so many problems with the idea that's like, wait a second, you're, you're Jewish and you're a businessman and you're actually like making money? Like, like to them conceptually, there's something flawed with that. Like how can you call yourself holy while having a job and making money? And yet we say, no, 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 it's totally the opposite. The whole point is to be involved in, in, in relationships and to infuse those relationships with Torah and spirituality and to do it in an elevated way. And that this is what God wants. With this in mind, you know, you, you, you see one of my favorite teachings, and, and I think um, it's, it's, it's said by uh, Rabbeinu Yonah, who's uh, one of the great Rishon, Rishonim, right? This is about a thousand years ago. Um, we know we're about to start reading about uh, Abraham, right? Abraham's about to enter into the world. So this is a major event. We just already said his name already uh, on Shabbos. So, so we know Abraham had 10 tests. So most people, most commentators say that the 10th test was the Akedus Yitzchak. You know, taking his son and putting him on the altar and what's going to happen, right? But Rabbeinu Yonah, who's really one of our greatest Torah authorities in history, says, no, the 10th test is what happens right after the Akeda. And you say, well, it's the event where he buys Mor Samach Pela, the cave of the patriarchs, from Ephron. So this is very difficult to understand because seemingly the tests are going up. And here he's taking his child, his one child that he had when he's 99 or 100, right? And Sarah had when she's 90, like this miracle baby who's the continuation of the, the Jewish line. And to, to offer him up, to, to sacrifice him, right? And now you're saying, wait a second, there is an even bigger test than that, which is to negotiate a real estate deal with a really annoying guy who wants to cheat you. <laughs> that's, that's the greater test? How do you wrap your mind around that? And yet, now listen, because it's super deep. It's really wonderful. The reason why it's greater is because we say that the destination point is not to leave this world. Right? Because Akedis Yitzchak is about letting everything go. 
You're just letting everything go and just putting it into the hands of God and trusting God in the utmost, utmost, utmost way, right? But that's not the end point. The end point is then to take that and to bring it back down into this world and then to be able to be that crazily expansive holy man at the same time of negotiating a difficult business deal. (laughs) Not to leave the world, but to ascend to that crazily high place and then to come back down and to, to be in this world with very annoying, difficult people and to still conduct yourself in an elevated way. That's, that's the end result. Okay? So, so now let's get back to Noah. So I just learned from Rabbi Freeman some a very, very amazing thing. So again, let's just review the, what, what the Sassover Rebbe says. What does it mean that the world became corrupt? Okay? It means, or that the earth became corrupt. It means that people looked at their own earthliness, meaning to say materiality, their own lives, as their own business. They didn't look at materiality, their own lives, physicality, as something to be instilled with spirituality and elevated. See, that's the corruption of the earth, the sense that the earth is separate from God. And what's the rectification of the earth? It's to instill the physical with the spiritual, which is what all of the mitzvahs are doing. That's what the whole, that's the whole thing. Kashrus, what's kashrus? That's what I eat is being elevated, right? What's tars hamishbacha? Like the laws of intimacy, basically. That's making sure that my physical relations are elevated. What's Choshen Mishpat? Those are all the laws of business. That's to make sure that all of my business is, is kosher, so to speak. So all of the aspects, you know, what's Torah study? To make sure that I'm seeing the world and thinking in an elevated way, right? So that's, that's all of Torah, is all designed for that, that goal of uplifting the physical and instilling it with spirituality. Now here's the new thing that I learned that when you read the account in the Torah you're, um, you think wow the whole world has become incredibly like just like they've lost their minds I mean it's not so far from what it looks like today basically <laughs> but there's one person there's Noah and Noah like Noah has it right he's the only it says that he was really the perfect tzaddik in his generation but, but Rabbi Freeman was, was saying over, I guess, I guess they're Midrashim, that, that there were other tzaddikim in the world. And he points to the fact, I, I just know how to say it in English, the oldest person in the entire Torah is Methuselah. Right? If you look at like, just the ages that people lived, no one lived longer than Methuselah. That's how you say it in English, anyway. And um, apparently, at the time of Noah, Methuselah had a yeshiva. And this yeshiva was already, like, he was already getting the Masorah, the, the traditions from Adam, from the Garden of Eden. So, in other words, there were tzaddikim 
at the time of Noah. So then, if that's the case, that there were tzaddikim, then what made Noah so great? Because those tzaddikim were like, okay, here is sort of like the spiritual dimensions of this world. We're just concentrating on that. In other words, their approach, in other words, the heavens belong to the heavens, and the earth belong to the earth, and we're choosing the side of the heavens, and that's how we're conducting our lives. But Noah was the only one, and here you can see, like a lot of people want to know, is like Noah Jewish, you know? Well, Judaism really begins with Abraham. Nonetheless, at the most core level, in terms of Noah's approach, it's completely Jewish. It's a definition of Jewish. Because Noah is taking the light and instilling the physical with that light. Which is what our approach is. Okay, so now let's revisit our premise. Was the whole Garden of Eden the last destruction before the world that God sought to create? And seemingly, I, I heard from Rabbi Sitran one time, and I, I just, I've never forgotten it, just sort of seared itself into my brain, which is that this world is the lowest of all of the worlds. And Rabbi Sitran, the senior Rabbi Sitran, said that, that, he had, that he had learned that in yeshiva, right? And so he asked while he was in yeshiva, if, if there's so many worlds, how do we know that this is the lowest of all the worlds? This is what he asked his Rebbe, right? And his Rebbe said back an amazing answer. He said that this is the lowest, this is the most concealed world that God can be where if you seek him out, you can still find him. In other words, this is absolutely the most concealed God can be, where if you seek him out, you can still find him. If you were any more concealed, you wouldn't even be able to find him. But here, if you seek him out, you can find him, and then once you find him, you see him everywhere. So, seemingly, it makes sense if, if, if God's plan, right, was for us to instill the physical with the spiritual, to seek him out, and thereby to raise all of the worlds, which is what happens when we do that. And this seems to be the world that God set out to create to begin with. So, you know... So, so we have to make sure, we have to make sure that we don't get buried by this world. It's so easy to get lost in this world. It's so easy to get lost in this world. And it all kind of goes back to that initial thought that we were saying, that God created this, this realm within himself called the vacated space, the empty space. And for us to remember that the empty space is also filled with godliness. Right? That there is no aspect of creation that isn't filled with godliness. And that we're never alone. We're never alone. Because the way the the, the way the Yetzirah 
the negative inclination tries to basically bring us down is just by whispering in our ear, you're all alone, you're all alone. You know, interestingly, therapeutically, one of the biggest things about support groups and things like that is that you find out that other people are going through what you're going through. And just the knowledge that you're not alone, that other people are going through what you're going through, that in itself is like this tremendous healing for people. Because whatever it is, people are, people are convinced I'm the only one who's experiencing this. And then you find out, wow, this is like normal, I guess, or, you know, one form of normal. And, and that's a tremendous relief. But the Yetzirah wants you to just to cut you off from absolutely everyone and everything, but really to cut you off from God and to cut you off from your own higher self. You know, I, I heard Reb Shlomo say one time, who are the dead people in this world? Because we say, you know, we believe in zombies, you know, meaning to say there's so many people out there who are just the walking dead, so to speak, not the, not the comic book version of zombies, but the, unfortunately, the, the scarier real-life version of zombies. And he says, who are, who, are, who, are, who, are the, who are the dead people of this world? They're the people who are cut off from their higher selves. See, because there's a you below and there's a you above. And we know, just in terms of the composition of the soul, we say that there are five levels to the soul. There's the nefesh, the ruach, the neshama. Those three aspects are within you. And then you have two aspects which are outside of you, the chaya and the yechida, which extend all the way to the kisei covet to the throne of glory. Meaning to say that in a very real sense, there's a you above. There's this higher, because there's this further extension of you, of your soul, which expands dramatically beyond you. In fact, we say that the body is the shoe of the soul. What does that mean? The body is the shoe of the soul. That just like your shoe covers a very small part of your body, right? Your shoe like covers what, what percent of your body? Very small percent. So too your body covers a very small part of your soul. So, so who are the dead people of this world? The people who have cut themselves off from their higher selves. And who are the live people in this world? The people who are connected to their higher selves, right? Which also means to be connected to God. So, so we have a little, a little hint as to where we're going. We have a little hint as to where we're going, which is the whole opening of Breshis, right? We have a hint of how we can get out of this world by, by not making it just about ourselves and, and not, not allowing ourselves to see this realm as a realm that's empty of God or cut off from God, God forbid, but that it's the further compacting of godliness in this world. And then this big chizik, this big sort of strength-giving sort of thought that, wow, if this is the world that God created for me to be in, that means that I'm doing something right. Every time I do something right, I'm really doing something right. 
Because that's not all plan B, that's plan A. You know? Can you imagine, like, you really, like, I, I'll tell you something. One time, um, I got, it was like a big birthday for me, it was my 40th birthday, and uh, my wife gave me a, uh, a present, and I could see from the box that it was a watch. And I was thinking, oh, you know, there was this watch that I, I saw, I saw a billboard of it in the neighborhood, and I was like, ah, oh, that's such a nice watch, I, I, you know, and which I like never really say, but I was like, wow, that, that's a really nice watch. I'd really like that watch, actually. But I didn't tell her about it, and it's like, here I see she's, just again from the box, I see she's giving me a watch. And I'm like, oh, I already don't like it. Because <laughs> it's already, I mean, I'm being honest, right? I'm like, because it's not that watch, and that's the watch that I want, and it's not that watch because I didn't tell her. And then I open it up, and it's that watch. Because the person who I told it to told her. <laughs> when I was looking at the billboard, I was with a friend. And that friend told her. And I was shocked. I was like, how did the watch that I want in like one moment? Like, I mean, it wasn't magical. It wasn't magic, but it was magical. <laughs> you know? Like somehow in my mind, it went from absolutely the wrong present, and I was already disappointed to exactly what I wanted. You know? So, you know... So what I'm saying is, is that it's like this world, if you like imagine that actually this is the world, this is the world that God wanted to make, and that when I'm doing something right, I'm doing something right within the world that God sought to make, a world where I can, you know, search God out, still find Him, do the mitzvot, instill the physical with the spiritual, Elevate not just this world, but all the worlds by doing that. And that that was God's A plan. And I'm doing God's A plan. That's fantastic. Here are some questions and answers. If that, if in fact, right. uh, what, what, what he originally planned was right. that to, right. to, to have the other... Yes. Other so you can make probably a lot of arguments about what I said. I'm saying a fairly radical idea. But there are many, many supports for it, as you can see. There are many, many supports for it. It's another way of looking at it. It doesn't change any of the bottom lines of anything that we're supposed to do. It doesn't change anything. But it's a, it's a shift in terms of thinking about this world and, and everything like that. Um, yeah, so where does it say that God was sad? At the end of the Pasha. At the end of Noah. Right, right, Brashis. Right, right. Right, because seemingly we weren't doing as well. Right. Yeah, it's a good question. It's a good question. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, 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 well, maybe, God regretted. Maybe it's because yeah. what you said, I mean, it's probably, you know, that too, but I yeah. guess, I you know, like, when you read it, you say, okay, then you don't know exactly, you know, like, is it God, because I've always, like, I wonder about it. So yeah. Why did, you, yeah, so why was the snake there? Like you say, why was the snake there? Why did this happen? Yeah. So why did they, you know, yeah. things, all of these things are... Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, we got to think, we've, 
feel we, the same thing. Yeah. Make a difference, but just in right. understanding the process. And understanding those verses, yeah. I think it requires more thought. I, I, I don't know, I can't give you an answer right now. But I like this idea, because this idea of them being light and then becoming physical, this idea that, um, you know, of the get in the back pocket, I do too. that it was planned all along, all of these things become much more understandable. The idea that there were many worlds before this world, and that this is kind of like God is giving us basically a glimpse of where we're going before we start. But nonetheless, there it, it does raise questions that, that, that I haven't fully answered yet. No, I yeah. love your explanation. Also. Yeah. But it makes me understand it better. Yeah. I, yeah. Good. Did you? Anyone? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh. Um, could it be argued that the whole reason why they chose to eat from the tree of knowledge and... Um, let me, let me um, suggest one thing off of that, which is, you see, you have the concept of um, what we call negative space. So what, what's negative space? So in, in the world of art, like if you have a sculpture, right, like the, the real art of sculpture is, is, is um, two parts. One is to create a physical form, which is very aesthetic and beautiful. But you're also carving something um, around the sculpture. In other words, the space that surrounds the sub that, that surrounds the sculpture is also part of the uh, canvas, if you will. And they call that negative space, the area surrounding the um, the sculpture itself. Okay, that's one application of the term negative space. Um, it's not negative. Is not used in a negative sense, <laughs> meaning a bad sense. It's just, it's not the primary space, what you would think of, but the surrounding space. Um, we have this concept in, in Torah as well. For instance, it says, um, there's a whole medrash, why did God begin the Torah with the letter Bez? Because everybody knows, um, in, in terms of the, the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph is the first letter. So wouldn't it be logical to begin the Torah which is the beginning, which is the blueprint of creation, with the letter Aleph. We're beginning it with the letter Bays. Well, already, Bays, now we can get another appreciation of the letter Bays, which is the number two. It's already hinting that something came before it. You understand? Like the worlds that were destroyed and created before it. All right? And also, all, all sorts of other things begins with Bays. In fact, interestingly, you want to hear something very deep and beautiful? If you open up any Talmud, right, any volume of the oral law, every Talmud begins on page two. You will never find a Talmud that begins on page Aleph. They all begin on page Bays. Because that blank space, that, that, that idea of not knowing before you begin the process of knowing is, has to be the foundation. In other words, anyone who begins their quest for truth with the sense that I know everything, now let me learn more, or now let me learn the details, already is on the wrong path. You have to begin with this blank page, this, this page Aleph, which doesn't even exist, which is blank, before you go to page two, which is for you, page one. That, that, that humility... That humility is page one, where you don't, you don't know. Now teach me. In other words, can you fill a cup that's already full? 
You can't. If you have a page one, if you are already the letter Aleph, you are already a full cup. So how can you teach someone who's, who's already full? Right? You have to be an empty vessel. That's, that's Aleph. And then you can be filled with truth. Okay? So, so, so the Medrash asks, why does the Torah begin with the letter Bez? Wouldn't, since it's the beginning, wouldn't you begin it with the letter Aleph? And so, um, maybe we'll just finish this teaching and then, but we're still on the subject of ne- negative space here. But just to tell you what the Medrash says, they say, no, Aleph is, stands for Aur, which means cursed. Bez stands for Baruch, which means blessing. This is a world of blessing. So now we've had probably a dozen or more classes just on the letter Aleph here. So you say, wait a second, Aleph stands for Aru, which means cursed? Wait a second. How many times have we learned that Aleph is actually composed of three letters, two Yuds and a Vav, which add up to 26, which is the Yud Kei Vav Kei, the name of God. Aleph is one. God is one. It's, it's a map of the universe. The upper Yud stands for the, the spiritual realms. The lower Yud stands for the physical realms. And the, the Vav is the Rakia, and it's also the six orders of the mission of the oral Torah. The, everything is contained in the Aleph. You're telling me Aleph is cursed? Right? It's like, well, yeah. Well, my explanation of that, how Aleph could be cursed, is because the whole point of human beings is that we should have bays. Remember, one of the, one of the levels of bays, one of the deepest levels of bays, is free choice. Because remember, bays means two. It means I can do this, or I can do that. That's base. That means free choice. The whole point is, amidst this illusion of isolation, amidst this illusion of independence, right? I still see God, and I choose to do the right thing. I overcome my physical impulse, and I do the right thing. This is the glory of human beings. This is the basis where human beings then become elevated and given, like, reward beyond what we can imagine. One of the reasons why they explain, one of the reasons why they explain that we don't receive reward in this world, why it's saved up for the next world, is because you literally can't fit the reward for one mitzvah into this world. That this world literally can't hold the reward for one mitzvah even. And that's because that, and, and, and that's, not, that's not hyperbole. It's because the reward is operating on a higher dimensional level. You can't fit something which is in a higher dimension into a lower dimension. It's just this quantumly higher level of existence. That's, that's the reward that, that all of us have in store for us. Okay, so, so if you just see, so why is Aleph Aurur? Why is Aleph Curse? Because if all of you're surrounded with is the oneness of God, and you don't have any free choice, well, then you don't get any reward. So that's a form of a curse, isn't it? So, so the Medrash continues. That's, that's my explanation. The, the Medrash continues, and they say, okay, so if, why not begin with the letter Aleph? Well, Aleph stands for this. Why not begin with a Gimel? Well, Gimel stands for that. Why not begin with a Dalit? Because Dalit stands for that. And then they go through the Aleph base, and then they conclude it has to be base, because base is Baruch. But again, this is very deep, because it gives you this concept of negative space. Meaning to say that you're not just looking at the base of Rashi, but God is showing you how to learn Torah. 
God is showing you that that letter could have been any other letter from the olive base, but God chose base. So you're reading base, but you're already beginning to ask yourself, what else could it have been? So you're thinking outside the box. You're not just looking at what's there. You're also being taught by what could have been there and wasn't chosen to be there. And now already your mind is expanding. And that's the same with every word of the Torah. Every letter of the Torah could have been any other letter of the Torah. Every word of the Torah could have been any other word. And so now, all of a sudden, you're like not just looking at what's there, you're also looking at what's not there. Okay? So now, with this in mind, let's go back to the Garden of Eden. God is now showing us, hey, there's this world, but let me give you a little taste of the negative space. Let me open up your mind to what could have been here and what's not here, so that you have a greater understanding of the environment and your potential and the world that you're actually acting in. Now, you're, you're working within this realm, but you know what's one step above this realm? This realm. Oh, now you begin to understand what the nature of reality is, because now you have some sort of context. Now you have the negative space surrounding this space. So that's why God is including the whole um, episode, if you will, of the Garden of Eden in order to expand our consciousness to the possibilities that exist within this physical world. Okay? Okay. Thanks to go, Shiga. Go ahead. You said a lot of the recent things today, and I think when uh, we're yes. contemplating your, your talks, I think it's like, uh, a very powerful tool to expand our consciousness and see more of a, of a Shem in this world. Yeah. Uh, my question is, still, you know, often I get locked in negative thought patterns, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and I was wondering uh, if you recommend you a technique to a rational way that when we're like, way to talk to ourselves to, to yeah. feel more connected and yeah. feel both more yeah. mentally and then physically connected as well to Hashem as we're walking or biking yes. or, you know. Yeah. So, so sometimes like I'll have some sort of like negative thought. Some, some sort of, you know, they say that it's, um, it's important to, to have a good neighbor or to distance yourself from a bad neighbor. So one of the levels of understanding that in, is that um, that that uh, your bad neighbor is your Yetzirah. <laughs> Everyone's got kind of like this bad neighbor that lives more or less right uh, on them, next to them, whatever it is. You know, Robert Frost, the poet, says that fences make the best neighbors. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a little bit more of a another approach, but but anyway. Um, and they say know how to answer a heretic. So, so a heretic can be someone who's actually arguing with you, or it can be your own Yetzirah. You know, what, what do you say to your own Yetzirah? So I just tell you two, two ideas, but um, um, everyone's different, and, and different things will work for different people at, at different times in their life. Um, so, so sometimes when I have some sort of heretical thought, or whatever it is, I'll say to myself, okay, David, just... This is just me talking to myself. I'll say, just stop for a moment. Where did this world come from? Did this world just appear? There's too much order in this world. It's impossible that this world just appeared. You know, remember the, um, 
the famous story about the people who came to discuss with a rabbi. I don't know if this is a parable, if this is a real life uh, story, and I don't know the name of the rabbi, uh, if it is a real life story. But either way, it's it's great. And um, they, they, they were asking him about the existence of God. And while they were waiting for him, he was in his, you know, his uh, study, I guess, they were looking at this amazing piece of calligraphy, this poem that was written, right? And when he comes, he, they, they, they want to ask him about that, but they also ask him about who wrote this. And he said, oh, the um, ink just spilled, and it made this poem. <laughs> and he said, well, that's impossible. You know, look, every letter is so beautifully and exactly and artistically written, and, and the words are all ordered to make sense and to form this beautiful picture and everything like that. It didn't just spill. And so they say, well, how do you think that this world just sort of randomly came into fruition? Right? Like, there's, if you look at it, there's too much structure, there's too much order. From one's DNA to, the, to what is the, how the air is composed in terms of oxygen versus hydrogen, they say that if there were any more oxygen in the world, if you lit a match, it would set the entire world on fire. Right? If there was a little less oxygen, everyone would suffocate in, in seconds. If the sun were... A little bit closer to the earth, the whole world would catch on fire. If it were a little bit further, it would freeze over. Like, there's so much exactitude, right, in terms of DNA. So a few more chromosomes, one more chromosome, creates a completely different order of person. Right? There's such exactitude. The world just just came into place. So no, a, a, a infinitely wise to the extent that we can describe God at all. Being created the world. So now, if God, if God created the world, does, that means he's here right now. That means he's still running the world. And, and does God want anything from me? Or did he just create the world? Does he have a relationship with me? For sure he has a, cre- a, a relationship with me. Right? Because if God is infinite, that means that he's on top of everything. Remember, it says that Every blade of grass has an angel standing over it, urging it to grow. So if a blade of grass has a separate angel assigned to it, a human being which has a piece of God, of God himself inside of them, does that not have a relationship with God? So then when I begin to think of these thoughts, I say, of course. So, so. And then, further irony, who is keeping me alive at this moment in order for me to ask, is there a God at all? <laughs> in other words, if there wasn't a God, I wouldn't even be able to ask myself the question, is there a God? Because who's keeping me alive and keeping my brain going at this moment? So the very fact that I'm even asking, is there a God, is proof that there's a God. <laughs> Do you hear? So that's, that's one thing, just to kind of like, take a moment to reacquaint yourself with um, where am I and what's going on and what is this around me and everything like that. And that's been helpful to me in terms of sort of like getting me back on track of going, of course, of course, you know. Another thing is, and this is a little more esoteric, so it may not be as helpful, but it's helped me in a practical way at at, at different times. Uh, It says in the Tanya that, um, remember, we believe in just one God meaning to say that we recognize that there's evil in the world, but that um, evil works for God. 
And because otherwise, if you say that, um, if you say that there's um, uh, good and evil, and that there's separate, there's separate powers, then that means there's two gods, right? So evil works for good, meaning, meaning God created the Yetzirah in order to test us, in order to bring out our inner potential in a more manifest way. Because that's what evil is, essentially. That's what a test is. In order to put a person in a situation where they have to contribute more, or to mine their own potential in a way they haven't done before. Right? So... So what will the role of the Yetzirah be, of, the, of, this, of this evil that God created, which works for him, be? It will be to whisper things into the person's ear. There's no God, or God's forgotten about you, or whatever it is, you know, whatever is alienating and destructive, right? So the Balatanya says that you say back to the Yetzirah, you don't even believe these things. Why should I believe them? <laughs> In other words, you are an angel of God. You're totally aware of God and the truth of God. You don't even believe it. Why should I believe it? So. Right. So black fire. Black fire and white fire, it, it's, it is similar because remember though, we say, and the Ramban brings in the beginning of the Torah that, that the Torah is black fire on white fire, right? No one should think that the white of the Torah is just like the paper, so to speak, that the Torah is written on. It's not. This is a map of the cosmos. And the black fire is that area which is um, revealed. And the white fire are those dimensions that we can't see. Those are the spiritual dimensions. So in, in that sense, in that this world is situated amidst a larger landscape of spirituality, then yes, the, the, the white fire of the Torah would be the negative space, would be the greater context, which is surrounding that which is revealed. Okay. And, and the second question is, I was thinking, did you see that the worlds were, they were, were more perfect before this world, or they were better worlds before? I, I, I didn't oh, say okay, either. Say no. oh, I, I they're more that. spiritual, they're more filled with light, but that doesn't mean that they're more uh, in tune with what God's um, design for the world is. Because I have this mental image of either Legos or sandcastles, mm-hmm. and that, um, you know, um, Hashem knows that there's going to be one more Lego that's going to knock it down, but it's the purpose is to create a really beautiful end piece. You know, the, the beautiful magic castle at the end, or the beautiful Lego. So there's going to be different worlds that are going to be knocked down until we get to the world that, we, that Hashem really wanted to create. Yeah, you know, the, the, um, I think it's Rav Elchanan Wasserman, I think, said this over, and he was talking about it in terms of the Holocaust and things like that, because he went through that and died during it, Akedish Hashem. And um, at one point he's quoted as saying that... Uh, you know, if you look at the planting process, you know, you have a nice field. And then what are people doing? They're digging up the field. Why? What was wrong with the field? They're digging up the field. And now they're, they're, they're planting something. And now something grows. And what do they do? 
They're, they're, they're ripping it down. What are they doing? Something just grew and now they're killing it. They're pulling it out of the ground. And then like with wheat, for instance, all of a sudden they're now taking one piece out of this wheat and they're throwing the, the whole majority of it away, like 90% of it away, they're throwing away. And then what do they take with the one thing they keep? They crush it. What are they doing? And then they mix it and they make flour. And then what are they doing? They put it in an oven to burn it. Like what, what kind of madness is this? And yet you see that this is actually the process of creation. And what you've done then is you've, you've created something that you can eat and which sustains you and which keeps you alive. And which is actually in its own way, a quantum leap. Like Rabbi Akiva says in the, in the Talmud, he says, he says, he, he was debating with a Roman and he says to him, what's greater? He shows him stalks of wheat and he shows him a, a, a loaf of bread. He says, which is greater? And so they agree, it's the loaf of bread. And he says, man made this loaf of bread. God made this wheat. <laughs> so that's, in other words, again, that, that seems so, it's, so is man greater than God? No. But God works with man and hands the ball to man for man to take God's creation and then working with God to bring it to an even higher level. Right? That's, that, that's what's going on, you know? So, what okay. was one of the worlds like? Why did why did God destroy those worlds and not like those those worlds? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that he didn't dis. I don't know that he disliked them. I just I my sense is that that wasn't the purpose. In other words, let's say you're going to Los Angeles and you're on a train and you pass through Kansas City. So would you say, well, I don't like. Oh, why didn't you like Kansas City? Well, it's not that I didn't like Kansas City, it's I was going to Los Angeles. So in other words, the, the point of the creation of the other worlds is you're on your, you're on your way to another you're on your way to another place. That's the destination. That doesn't mean that the other places are bad. That just wasn't the point of where you were going. Do you think there was life on, on any of those worlds? Um, I don't know. If God wants there to be. <laughs> Then for sure there is. What's that? There's not much information about it. Actually. Life in other. Well, we have, we do have the, we do have the concept of extraterrestrials, but it's not the science fiction notion. We have angels. What are angels? Angels are higher sentient beings, which live in other realms, right? Like that. That is more or less the concept of aliens. Um, People think of aliens as people like you and me, but they just live on Mars, right? But, but if you think of like the world of angels, that's actually a much more compelling version of it. And this, we've always had this notion. So, I mean, it's an adjustment from modern science fiction, but it's actually a deeper, cooler, truer thing. Now, if there are also people on Mars, you know, Mazel tov. Like, I don't know how that affects me, but you know, Good. I hope they're happy. If they're if they're there, I, I hope they're doing well. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so you said that the world of Bereshit and the original sin is like it gives us context for the possibilities that extend beyond our. Context. Yes. Right. Right. So. So if we if we don't have Torah, then we don't. 
necessarily, like if we don't, for people who don't believe in Torah, they don't have that context, right. they still have the free will, right. and they choose to do the good. Yeah. Where does that, how does that happen? Where does that live in them? Well, everyone has souls, right? And so everyone, see, it's, it's basically, to what extent are you educated, basically? You see, so, so the idea is that everyone has a godly soul. Everyone desires on some, on some level to do that good, right? But then we're educated in different ways. So, um, so, so a person who's doing good, who doesn't have Torah, still, it's still counted on their behalf, and it's still coming from this very strong connection between this, what's inside them, and what's beyond them, right? Um, so, so, uh, so that's, I, I don't know if I'm really answering your question, though. No, that, that was a, I mean, right now, right now we have, unfortunately, we have, among the Jewish people, we have what we can only understand to be a plague of ignorance. It's a, it's a plague. It's a plague of ignorance. Because people don't know. People don't know. And if you don't know, you can't make the right choices. And so it's very devastating. And I... I I really, it pains me too much, but I'm going to say it anyway, but it pains me horribly to offer this analogy because there's so many things wrong with saying this analogy. Nonetheless, if you just want to be a numbers person, which we aren't, we say people are not numbers, but nonetheless, if you want to look at it on a numbers level and you want to compare the amount of Jews who were lost during the Holocaust to the amount of Jews who are being lost since then, like in America, to assimilation, it's in the millions. It's in the millions. Now again, it's a horrible comparison in that these people have not experienced this torturous loss of life and, and everything like that. But in terms of what it means to just sort of like the, the family of Israel, you have millions of people who are no longer part of the family of Israel because of ignorance and because of assimilation. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a different type of Holocaust. Again, I hate making any comparison whatsoever because it's so problematic on so many levels. But, but nonetheless, if people don't know the right thing to do, how can they do the right thing? You know? So that's why Jewish education is so essential. It's so essential. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah.